Well, we have a lot more terrifying things to discuss about AI. A lot has happened since the last time we spoke, Mike. I don't presume that I'm the center of the universe, <laughs> but there is an almost Truman Show-like aspect sometimes to life, mm -hmm. and this is one of those things where I feel like, you know, I was seeing enough about AIR around the place. Like, you know, there was a reason that we spoke about it because it was coming into our worldview more and more. Right. But in the time between these last two episodes, I feel like it has taken over the world. I can't <laughs> move for people talking about it. It's coming up on podcasts that have got nothing to do with this stuff, like not even tech-related shows they're mm -hmm. talking about. Like, Adina sent me a link to her one of her favorite podcasts. It's a podcast called Comic Lab, which uh, is about cartooning and, and making comics. Mm -hmm. They did, like, a whole episode talking about it. And it makes sense for them a little bit because they are comic artists, right? They are right, artists. Right. But they're afraid like, for why their future. now? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, I, I think this is definitely the biggest Truman Show-like effect for anything that we have ever spoken about. And I think it's just that we happen to hit it at the exact right moment before yeah. a bunch of things exploded. Yeah, it's like, realistically, I know why this happened, but it's still such a strange feeling. This happened yeah. because like, we spoke about it because it was starting to become a thing that we couldn't avoid, right? Mm -hmm. So... That's why then it's just like a snowball effect. Oh, I know, I know. And like listeners may remember that I had a, a conference that I said I was going to go to in September. Yeah. As like, oh, guess what? One of the major topics like everyone was discussing at the conference, it was a bunch of AI stuff. Like mm. my whole life just exploded into mm -hmm. this in the past month. And I think also with the last episode of the show, there was like a little bit of confusion over our positions because there's just like there's so much that this touches on right like this mm -hmm. we just kind of talked about it off the cuff and you know I, I really think this this absolutely touches on almost everything in the world so I think to try to be clear it's like with AI art and the language models in particular in the short term I think there's a lot of interesting discussions to be had about how it affects technology and how it affects the economy and how it affects ethics but in the long term we're seeing the beginning of the end of the human race okie dokie <laughs> so, <laughs> is this the clarifying you were looking to do <laughs> yeah just, just so can, people can understand where i'm coming from there's lots of interesting discussions to be had where you can take many different positions but ultimately i think this all points in one direction which is not very good but yes in the short term since the last time we spoke so much has happened and i think one of the first things that you sent to me was that dolly is now open for the public to use yeah and the thing that i think really helped kick it off was because last episode we were talking about how, how you oh you need these like massive computing clusters to do this kind of stuff i don't know it was like 10 days after that episode went up the very first desktop versions of these things came out and yeah. the one i've been playing with is called diffusion b which allows you just on your mac as long as it's um, one of the new m processors so that it's fast enough it allows you to start typing in whatever and generating ai art and so it's like oh okay this went from supercomputing clusters only down to Oh, it can happen on your desktop, which mm -hmm. is, I think, the first time that lots of people actually started to play with it firsthand. And I think that's kind of what kicked off for lots of people. Oh, this is really real. Like, I can I can play with it 
and I can see what it does. The first publicly used by us piece of AI art went up, which was uh, running our Cortex logo through um, some AI art stuff. How did you do that? That was done with, oh God, what was it called? It was done with Dream, I think, is one of the okay. one of the projects. But you can upload a piece of art and have it like iterate on oh, that piece of art okay that makes sense then because i wonder it's like how did you get it to do the cortex logo this is also one of these things like even diffusion b which is the thing that you can play with on your laptop it started out as oh you can only just put in words and then it will generate images but even that one now you can give it an image and then ask for modifications on that image but the dream program just lets you put in a piece of art mm. and then it just iterates on it in some way mm -hmm. part of the intrinsically horrifying thing about all of this art is that a bunch of examples had to be rejected because the ai knew that it was a brain and so ended oh. up making it look very like oh it's a horrifying mass of meat that's nice. also a brain <laughs> mm. my favorite which brings us to ai art why are you so terrifying so last time we spoke another one of these things was Oh, obviously, this is coming for video. It's just a matter of time. It's just a question of of how long does it take computationally to do these sorts of things. And it's like, oh, is is that going to happen next year? No, it happened two weeks after the show went up. And I have something for you to take a look at, which was the first version of this, which is this was made a little bit manually. It was made with stable diffusion. But the prompt is... A journey through a boy's life. Again, this is not true video, but it's it's like an um I don't know how to describe it. It's a it's a it's like I'm watching it now. It's like a flip book. Yeah, it's a bit like a flip book. So just just take a look at uh -huh. it and tell me what you think about this. I mean, it's weird. Like it's not much of a video to me, mm -hmm. really. Like I can see it's just like a bunch. You know, you're just cycling through a bunch of images. It's got weird. I just got weirdly religious there for a minute. What is happening here? Like, what is what is going on here? Did an AI generate these and put them together, or like, what, are they generating them from each other? Like, what is going on? How is this being made? Yeah, so I read a little bit of what the author said, and the impression is he started with a general image that's called a journey through a boy's life, and then each of the next frames is based on the frame before it given that same piece of information. It's going in some really weird places. We just went to war for a while. Yeah. And now there's some kind of eldritch horror occurring. Like, okay, I mean, it's really weird. Like, I watch something like that and knowing where it's coming from, and it doesn't make me feel great mm -hmm. in a way because of the, the weird places the AI takes itself. Mm -hmm. And there's, like, an uncomfortability in that. Like... I do not know why we spent a significant portion of that in various wartime. Mm -hmm. And no one can really answer that question. I assume there's no way to know why the AI went that route and stuck in it for quite some time. So, so as, as a description for the listeners, it is, uh, I mean, I think it's, it's sort of horrifying and it's a little, it's like very dirty looking for some reason, but it is, it is like a sequence of images that start with a child and the child slowly grows up and you just see a bunch of things like a kid at the desk doing his homework and it sort of transitions. The kid just gets increasingly older and older. And then, yes, it's young men at war for a while. And I presume this is one of these side effects of what's in the training database. Yeah. And it has some concept of 
oh, based on all of the images I've seen, what has a boy been doing in his 20s? And so it generates like a ton of, of war imagery. I also suspect that's why at that moment it also gets weirdly religious, like a lot of crosses appear, because mm-hmm. I, sus- I presume that that's coming from graveyard stuff. And it goes all the way through to ending with like a, a, you know, a dead body laying on a table with sort of muddy blood coming down from it. Mm-hmm. This was the first thing that I saw that I thought, oh, this is a video. And I would also legitimately say, oh, this is a piece of art. Like you could you could display this in an art museum yes. and it wouldn't be out of place. And what it made me think of was... I don't know if you've ever seen the animations from Pink Floyd's The Wall. Yeah. That's what this made me think of. Oh, it has that kind of feeling to it. And it has a really horrifying animation style. Mm-hmm. And I went back and and wanted to rewatch some of the animation sections of, of that movie. And boy, it was an interesting experience because in comparison, suddenly the walls seemed remarkably undetailed. And I, I just felt like I could only see, oh, it's so simple. And like that is perhaps one of the most complicated examples of, of like hand-drawn animation is the wall. Oh, God, compared to this. Oh, yeah. They just can't possibly put the detail in every single frame that exists in this one thing. And so I just I just had a real feeling of, wow, what a jump. It's sort of addressing the same idea but in a hundred thousand times more detail. So anyway, that'll be in the show notes for people to take a look at. And then, I don't know, another seven days after that, Meta and a few other companies announced true text-to-video projects. And I have some links in the show notes that you can click on. And so this is called um, Make-A-Video. Mm-hmm. And if you if you take a look at some of these links, I think this stuff looks more like what stable diffusion does okay this this looks like take all of the generators and make them do animation right like yeah it looks it has this a similar look to like the quality of some of the imagery is like has the telltale signs of this was made by an ai art generator Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the key characteristic of a lot of this stuff is it's still quite dreamlike because Mm -hmm. a lot of the the details aren't there. There's a lot of areas where it's kind of fuzzy. But I think this, again, is the thing where a lot of the detractors of this kind of thing said, oh, you'll never be able to do video. And you go, well, yeah. Let's just wait. Let's just wait and see how long this takes. And mm-hmm. we go, okay, here we go. Here's here's the first versions of video where you can just type the words. A dog wearing a superhero outfit with a red cape flying through the sky. And it makes that. Like, it makes a little video of that thing. And there's another video project, which I'll I'll try to find for the show notes for viewers later, which was this, but it's like a multi-scene description. So you can say things like, a woman swimming in the ocean. She dives under the water and picks up a starfish on the ground and then returns to the shore. And it's able to keep that concept straight the entire time and construct the whole scene instead of just an image that's moving. So the speed on this in the space of what? Five weeks has been absolutely breathtaking. This all seems 
inevitable. I will say I'm surprised at the speed, like you, right? Like that we have from the last episode to now, how mm. much has happened. The thing that I just want to draw people's attention to that gets overlooked in the AI art discussion is people are talking about the art because it's it's visual. You can see it. I think it's the most understandable thing that's occurring. But to me, the much bigger deal is the less visible language model stuff. And so it is the same idea, but for words, where AI is responding to some text prompt with an answer of, of some kind. And we talked in more texts about AI explaining jokes, like mm. how, how an AI can explain a joke. Listeners can go check that out. But I, I have an example that, that I didn't mention that a listener pointed out from that paper that I had missed, which I think is much more impressive. So again, you can do this same thing. AI does it understand words. And so I'm going to give an input, a thing that the user told the computer, and then the output, how the computer answered. So here is the input, and this is this is very strange. It's almost like a puzzle, just so you can understand what I'm what I'm saying here. Input: Michael is at that really famous museum in France, looking at its most famous painting. However, the artist who made this painting just makes Michael think of his favorite cartoon character from childhood. What was the country of origin of the thing that the cartoon character usually holds in his hand? So, do you think you have an answer to that question? No. Okay, here is what the AI said. The most famous painting in the Louvre is the Mona Lisa. Yeah. The artist who made the Mona Lisa is Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo da Vinci is also the name of the main character in the cartoon Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Leonardo da Vinci is from Italy. The thing that Leonardo usually holds in his hand is a katana. The country of origin of the katana is Japan. The answer is Japan. Okie dokie. Right? I mean, part of my issue there is I forgot it was Leonardo da Vinci who made the Mona Lisa, but I would not have remembered that Leonardo the Turtle from Ninja Turtles held a katana because I thought that he had like a kendo stick or something. That is horrifying. Right? Because <laughs> this is because this is actually a good example, right? Because my human brain forgets things. Mm -hmm. The AI brain doesn't. It just has all the information. Or can mm -hmm. get it, I assume. I don't know where from. But like the difference between pitching me against the machine there is I just couldn't remember a couple of key pieces of information, which now you tell me I did know them. Mm -hmm. So it's weird. Yeah, or even when I first read this input, it's just phrased in such a strange and vague way. Yeah, I do wonder why they did it that way. Like, that is odd to me. I think the whole the purpose of why it's it's framed in this really strange way is to give the minimal amount of information that you can regarding what the actual answer is. Mm. They don't even say like the most famous museum in France. It's a really famous museum in France. Oh, I see. Yeah. Right. And also they're like, they're trying to get an answer, but they're asking a bunch of questions that, that require recalling the previous answer. Right. Right. It's, it's a multi-stage yeah. thing to think yeah. through. I, I think the particular one that's really killer here is the artist who made this painting just makes Michael think of his favorite cartoon character from his childhood. Yeah. For the AI to make the connection 
oh, it's Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo is one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja yeah. Turtles. Because there's no concept of how old the person is, right? But yeah, there's no concept of how old the person yeah. is. Simply being able to draw that out of like, what painting in France would make someone think of a childhood cartoon? That's a crazy abstract yeah. thing to think of. But the machine got it. So, so I think this like input-output is a an example of, again, the AI art stuff is interesting. The text stuff to me is where a lot of the much more concerning stuff comes from. Mm. And there's a little bit of a less visceral demo, but I actually found this the most striking thing I have found in uh, language models. But it's a little bit hard to describe. So there's an article called Using GPT-3 to Pathfind in Random Graphs. GPT-3 is one of these language models. It's the most advanced one that people have access to. Uh, although at the conference I was at, I got to see some of the not publicly released <laughs> stuff, which was much more terrifying, right. but we'll just leave so that good. alone for now. So, so good. Love to hear GPT -3 it. GPT-3 is the much older one. And this, this is the most impressive thing that I've seen. So... This is a little bit hard to describe on a podcast, but there's this problem in mathematics, which is called the traveling salesman problem, which is say, oh, you're a salesman and you have to get to 10 cities in the United States. What's the shortest possible path to travel between those 10 cities in any order? And it's one of those things like it seems like it should be easy, but it turns out this is just incredibly difficult to actually solve in a reasonable way. Just a hugely computationally intense problem. So someone basically got the idea of, hey, why don't I see if GPT-3 can solve the traveling salesman problem? So I think you need to go read the paper to see the details. But let me just describe it in a, in a general way where the person gave an input to GPT-3 that says something like this. There's 17 locations. We need to find the shortest path between these locations. Location 1 is connected to locations 7 and 13. Location 13 is connected to locations 9 and 2. So they just wrote out like a bunch of, here's all of the connections. You're currently at location 3. Find the optimal path to location 8. And GPT-3 just did it. Basically, half of the time it was able to find an optimal or near optimal path, just given a bunch of random locations and the connections between them. And what's just what's like that may not sound like much, but th what needs to be understood here, what is absolutely mind blowing is that GPT-3 has just been given a ton of like text documents from which to derive the world. And inside of it, somehow... It has the concept of locations and connections and what does it mean to try to find the path uh, to a different location. Somehow it's thinking of what is the optimal solution. And again, like it's not programmed for this. This is an incredibly difficult math problem, but it has an idea of what's going on. And so I've just seen more and more people are really trying to push the edges of these language models to say, what do you understand? And the answer keeps coming out to be much more than you might have imagined, that there's a better understanding of something in the world that has just been derived from dumping tons and tons of text files into this big database and building a neural network on top of it. It is genuinely, genuinely terrifying. And I'll just say, like, 
I don't think I can talk in much detail about what I have seen, but I saw a couple demos of the next generation of this stuff in person, and it was extremely alarming what you could ask it to do and it could give reasonable answers to. And I think just like the AI art stuff, it has clearly crossed into the realm of creative in a way that I think people just wouldn't have expected. Like writing fiction? Uh, Exactly, yes. That's exactly the kind of thing. Some public similar projects that are easier to talk about are there's a few cases of auto-generated text adventures. So exactly the thing that we do right for the bonus episodes of Cortex where we work through a text adventure that someone has created. Mm -hmm. There are now projects that do that where you can just play an infinite text adventure where it keeps spitting out like oh you're in this room and here are your options of what you can do and if you select an option like it'll just go forever in a coherent way it's like oh my (laughs) so yeah i think the ai art stuff is flashy the language model stuff is what people are going to be quite surprised at how much it might take over soon. Mm. And that includes a lot of things that people would not expect, like computer code. There are already some public examples of this, of you express in human language the computer code that you want created, and it is able to create that code for you. So we're rapidly encroaching on computers programming themselves territory. They definitely want the computer to think for itself. <laughs> that's, what I'm, that's what I'm looking for. I mean, look, look, we can get to the Doom stuff later. Like, there's so much you, other you, stuff I, to talk about. Wait a second, about. what do you mean later? If we're not, are we not already in it? I feel like we're in it. What are you talking about? No, no, Mike, I don't think this is the Doom stuff at all. Oh, this is okay. just timeline Mere stuff. Mere follow-up at this point. Yeah, this is just, hey, what's happened since we last spoke? And a lot has happened since we last spoke. And this is why at the beginning I kind of divided, oh, there's there's stuff in the near term mm-hmm. and there's stuff in the long term. And we're still just in the near term conversation, Mike. Like we're not even remotely close to the long term conversation. <laughs> hey, uh, this isn't an ad, but we're putting it in in between the ad sounds because Mike and I have been talking for forever (laughs) about ai and we forgot that we we need to tell you about the subtlety and the subtle sweater going on sale Mm -hmm. sometime before the 90 minute mark of the show so we're just breaking into our own conversation now from the future (laughs) this is us from the future coming back to tell you that we talk about ai for an hour and a half accidentally (laughs) in this episode and we realize as purveyors (laughs) of fine merchandise that is a terrible way to structure the show if you want to let people know that the incredibly popular and beloved Subtlety and Subtle Sweater is back for its one time a year sale (laughs) to leave that 19 minutes into the episode we are doing a bad job selling our products (laughs) so if you go to cortexmerch.com right now you will find until November 8th 2022 a limited time sale of the subtlety and subtle sweater. We are bringing back all of our beloved colors. The original blue, black, green, and red. We are adding a new color this year, gray. The best color. Now, I am really into this. (laughs) So we did some general merch at Relay, and we added a bunch of colors for some stuff we were doing, including just a light gray sweater option for one of the shirts that we did. And as soon as I got it, I was like, oh, God, I need this in a subtlety. 
because that light gray color is just like the traditional sweater color, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we now have that available and looks so good with the light blue stitching. So that's available in tees and in sweaters with all of the other colors, red, green, blue, black, and gray. You can get any of them. This year, Gray, I am going to be replacing my original blue sweatshirts, I've decided. Ooh, okay. Because, I mean, that I've had those for like four years now or something. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to get some new ones. You're probably right. Um, from where I'm recording right now, I can look into my closet and this, this is not an exaggeration. One third of my closet is subtle sweaters yep. and subtle tees. <laughs> this is the same for me. Like, I'm wearing a green tee. The green sleeper hit. The green is so good. I'm buying yeah. a bunch more green. Green looks great. Like this happens to me every year. We get a new color. I buy one of each, and I'm like, oh, God damn it! I wish I put more of them. And I, then I also have to wait a year to get more of them. <laughs> yeah. But that that green so good for me actually surprisingly it was the red. Like I bought some of the mm-hmm. red just like oh it's good to have a complete set for me and it's, I wear it a surprising amount and I would never have picked that as a color for myself. But uh yeah, no, this the subtle sweaters and the subtle tees they're seriously so comfortable. Yep. It's we get just a ton of positive feedback from people who really like them. Which is part of why we realized We've got to break into the show and remind you, hey, they're on sale. If you want them, you need to get them now. People love them. It's just this one-time sale. So go and order them right now. Yes, I cannot impress upon enough that you do this. We will not have another episode come out to remind you to do this before the sale is over. Mm -hmm. It's a three-week sale from when the episode goes out. November 8th is when it's done, and it's gone for a year. So we only do this once a year. Mm-hmm. So if you want them, you need to go and get them at cortexmerch.com. Yeah. I cannot impress upon you enough <laughs> as well how good these things look. Like yeah. a couple of days ago, I was wearing the red one and I was walking towards a glass door and I was like, damn, that looks good. Like it's just a good, <laughs> like our brand on a shirt like that or a, on a sweatshirt like that, it just looks so professional. Like I'm mm-hmm. so happy we did this as like a thing. They are so great. I also feel like I'm, I'm trying to do the impossible thing, which is it happens every year that when the sale is over, we get contacted from people who are going like, oh, I, t- I want the shirts. How can I buy them? And I'm like, I'm, tr- like, I'm trying to talk to you right now. The person who who's going to be sad in five weeks when they can't get them. Mm-hmm. Y- you need to do this now. We're still going to be talking about AI later. But no, if you ever want these shirts, which you definitely do, if you want to wear the most comfortable sweater you have ever worn go to cortexmerch.com right now and get yourself some fantastic clothing to wear you will not regret it everybody loves these things and they're sad when they're not on sale so cortexmerch.com pause the podcast right now or let me give a secondary thing if you're like but gray mike i'm driving right (laughs) here's what i'll tell you you can do Imagine in your mind now something you see at the end of your commute. It might be a billboard. It might be like a sign in your parking space. It might be your garage door, whatever. Imagine that thing right now. Tie in your brain the image of that thing with cortexmerch.com. Think about it right now. Say it in your mind a few times. So when you arrive at your destination, you have set yourself a reminder. Look, look, Mike's trying to pull some fancy memory palace stuff over here. Uh, You know, my method is much more direct. I just say, 
Hey Siri, remind me in three hours to go to cortexmerch.com. Hey Google, remind <laughs> me in three hours. <laughs> hey Google, remind me in three hours to go to cortexmerch.com. <laughs> We're breaking into your life now. What are you going to do? cortexmerch.com. Okay, and now back to us in the past talking about AI. Are we going to have that long-term conversation? Yeah, 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 we will, we will. Um, but, like, I, I, th- I think there's also just left over from last time, there's still just, like, a bunch of stuff in the near term yeah. that might be worth revisiting. One of the other things that came up last time is how, how do these models work? Like, how do they even begin to start creating anything, whether it's poetry or videos or computer codes like how how does this work and fundamentally these ai systems are made by just hoovering up a ton of information in the relative domain and feeding it into the system for the system to be trained upon and and i do think one of the most concerning short-term questions about that is like what does what does it mean to use the public work that people have done whatever that is you've written a book and you've published it you've gone on to stack overflow and you've helped answer hundreds of people's questions about computer code you've been on deviant art for years and you've made images and like that stuff has been sucked into a computer somewhere so that it can then produce imitations or produce new work based on on what you have done mm-hmm. I think that's that's like a that is just a really difficult question. Human inspiration. So one of the things that a lot of people brought up is how is this any different to being inspired by someone's work and creating your own work? Now mm-hmm. I feel like it is quite different. But what do you think? I think it's different, but it is hard to articulate why in a coherent way. I feel like I have something that is, is I think is pretty core to me, but I also I don't I know a lot of people don't agree with it. What is that? The difference to me is the skill required in acting on the imitation is the thing that I actually think is valuable. What what do you mean by that sentence? Let's imagine we'll go with painting. Right, it's just mm-hmm. it's just a simple thing that we can all understand. Right, how somebody paints a picture. If you look at a painting, we'll talk about the previously uh, famous Parisian art piece, the Mona Lisa, right? Mm-hmm. And you want to make your own Mona Lisa to be able to take the inspiration from that piece and do it yourself. It is an imitation of previous work, but you had to do it. You had to practice and get the skill and build up your own level of skill to perform that work. Now, yes, all you have done is imitate it, but if you get even 50% close, you've made something that's interesting. You've now learned the skills that you can go out maybe and produce your own work, but you've built the actual skill, the practice. You've built the skill. That is what I think is the thing that concerns me most about this type of work is that I worry that the skills will get lost. And I accept that some people do not value that the same as me. Mm. 
But that's where I come from with this, where I think that there is an inherent humanity in these mostly inconsequential skills that we value important as humans. Practices, traditions, all of this kind of stuff. I hold those kinds of things dear. And my concern with this, a lot of this stuff is we may lose this part in larger numbers. Like we may lose this part of our humanity to more people if the creation of art is so simple. Like, for example, I saw a comment on our YouTube video this morning, the one we put up. And this commenter had said that one of the things that they love about the idea of AI art is that there are movies that people want to exist that don't currently exist and they can type, they would maybe in the future be able to type a prompt into an AI art generator and it would create that movie for them to watch. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I can't think of anything worse than that. Like for, Why? For me, because there's no art in there. There's no passion in there. There's no drive from a creator, from everyone involved in the creation of a movie to come together and work towards something good. Now, you may sit and think to yourself, Mike, I don't agree with what you're saying right now. And that is perfectly fine. But I just want people to understand from my perspective, the creation of art is as important, if not more important, than the piece that is at the end. And I think if all we end up with is just a bunch of pieces at the end, we will lose so much of the humanity in this work. The, the ideas that somebody might have that sparks off something to create a different shot in this way. Like, that is what I actually hold to be so important to who we are as the human race rather than just here is media to consume. So, I don't know. I don't know if I'm expressing myself clearly, but I just want people to understand that, like, the thing that I care about is the creation of the art. And it's not even just about jobs. Mm. I just worry that we will lose this part of who we are. And like one of the things that makes us different to every other species on this planet is this kind of thing that we do. Sometimes for pleasure, mostly for pleasure. There is business in it, but people like to make things because they just like to make them. That's something I find to be so beautiful and I don't get the same sense of pleasure out of typing six complex sentences into a text field to then look at an image. Mm. Maybe I'm old-fashioned. If I'm trying to summarize your position, because I, I often I often have a hard time when, when people use language like oh it's it's a like a fundamental part of our humanity like i'm not i'm never quite sure what that means but i I guess i'm i would i'm trying to summarize your position as like you you think it is just a fundamental good that humans are producing art and that part of that process is the skills that are required to be learned in order to make that art i think that there is an importance in it Mm -hmm. i i can't tell you why but it just feels I don't know. There's a lot of emotion in it. And I just want people to understand that like, I'm not sitting here of like, oh no, my job's going to go away. Mm. Because realistically, 
it's not going to in my lifetime. I feel pretty confident about that. We'll get to why in a little bit. I have an example. I, I think we'll, we'll kind of like clear up why I'm not concerned about my own job. I'm mm. concerned more about creativity as an idea, something that I care greatly about, about people being creative, even if it's just for fun. Mm. And I'm just not sure that I like this idea of creativity will just ultimately become the same thing which is how good can you be at writing a prompt like that doesn't feel creative to me and the act of the act the process doesn't feel like it exists to me in the same way anymore i don't know i agree i find it strange this argument that the new artistry will be in creating the prompts there's something i don't know there's something very odd to me about that argument it, it kind it kind of reminds me of a while ago when ai systems started becoming the best chess players in the world there was this what to me always seemed like an absolutely bizarre idea that the chess the, it was i forget what they called it but it was it was this concept of, of like oh the best chess player will be a, a hybrid chess player that it will be a person who is being advised by the computer and there was a period in time where that was true that a, a tag team of a human and a computer could beat the best computer and they could beat the best human that always seemed to me like a strange artifact like this won't exist forever this just happens to be the situation right now but i see no reason why the computer's won't just ultimately outclass the human and the human will just be like a monkey, right? Adding absolutely nothing yeah. to this incredibly complicated game that's taking place. And the, it's not, I don't, it's not the best comparison, but I feel that there is something in this concept that people have of artistry will be the prompts. That's the if same. If the computers are getting so good at text at the same time that computers are getting so good of interpreting text to create yeah. art why will they not just meet yeah maybe maybe that's what it is is it's like why do you think you will be the best at coming up with the sequence of words that generates the most interesting art yeah if i just you, don't, like because yeah. similarly like if this is the same argument of like oh the computer will make better art than any human ever can right like that's kind of the thinking of like, oh, or just as good or good enough. Then why do you think computers won't be just as good as you are at creating prompts? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe that's that's you kind of sharpened it up there. I find that argument strange. And and even even if let's say that for, you know, for whatever reason that was never it turned out that just that wasn't true for for it's built into the laws of the universe that humans are just great at writing prompts in ways that machines will never be, which I think is strange. But let's just say it was true. At least in my experience of playing around with Diffusion B, I just I, I agree with you. I don't think there was really anything creative about what I was doing. It's problem solving. It's creative problem solving. But that's like a completely different thing to what I care about, which is the process of practicing and getting good at a thing. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that that's really important. I think I'm going to do it again. I think it's part of the human experience. I do. And it doesn't <laughs> need to be that everybody becomes a painter. But we all have these things in our lives that we practice and get better at. Mm -hmm. Right? It's like, why don't I just give a, my game controller to a robot and then just watch what it does? Mm. Like, th that's where we're going. It's like Wally, right? This is how we get to Wally. <laughs> This is how Wally -E happens. That we're all just sitting in these chairs. Like that's right now is the right. beginning of the 
the path to Wally. Well, Wally if we're lucky, but yes. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just like, I feel like we have to do things, whatever it is, some kind of thing that we enjoy the process of. Mm. And I feel like if all we're doing is saying that like this stuff is just going to replace filmmaking, it's just like, I don't want to watch those movies. I really don't, but I like there to be soul in something. I, I like to believe that a human was involved in the endeavors that I'm consuming. Like, yeah. But again, maybe I'm old-fashioned, and I'm fine to accept that, but I'm just trying to get across like why these things are important to me, why I am so passionate about it. Yeah, I sort of have a minor point and a major point on that that topic. I think I think last time I made some offhanded remark of... Like very soon in major productions where we're going to see stuff that's AI generated and not know it. And uh, I didn't realize at the time, but like, oh, that was already true. Because I didn't know about this. Yeah. I had watched uh, the Obi-Wan Kenobi show on Disney and I didn't really think about it. But when I had watched Rogue One, I was very aware of listening to James Earl Jones do Darth Vader's lines of like, He's still Darth Vader, but he's getting too old for this. Like, you yep. can just hear it in someone's voice that they're just older. That's just what happens uh, as your vocal cords physically change. And when I watched Obi-Wan Kenobi, I never thought about it. And I also didn't think about the fact that I didn't think about it. And I realized since we recorded that episode, oh, I didn't think about it because all of his lines were done with AI. Uh, it, there's a program called Respeecher mm-hmm. that will take a voice actor's lines and redo them in the voice of someone else. And, and what's really quite remarkable about it is it isn't just what you sort of think like voice modulators on the phone. Like, oh, I, you know, I can increase or decrease my pitch, but it still sounds like me. Everybody has vocal tics and things. It's like, no, no, no. Respeecher will put in the vocal tics of the other person. Like, it's not just making your words sound in their voice. Mm-hmm. It's making them sound like them. Just as, a, as an interesting thing to note, though, I did I did go back on YouTube and I watched some of the original line deliveries of James Earl Jones in the original Star Wars. It was like, ooh, he is better here. Like, he has, like, funny little things that he does with a bunch of words that make those line deliveries really great. And there isn't as much of that in the Obi-Wan Kenobi show. I will say, when I watched Obi-Wan, there was something about Darth Vader's performance that I didn't like. Mm-hmm. And I assumed it was because James L. Jones was getting older. Right. But it turned out it wasn't the case. But there was there was something that felt missing to me, and I just put it down to, and I remember saying to Adina at the time, I can't believe they're still getting this guy to do this. Why don't they just get, like, a voice actor? <laughs> right. <laughs> Leave James Earl Jones alone. Like. Yeah. Well, I just, it was just kind of just like, they ha- this isn't going to last forever with him. Right. So, like, they need a, a path. And they created one, and it did a fine job, but th- it still felt like it was missing something to me. I can't put my finger on what it was. It just didn't feel right. And I don't know if this was part whatever but what i will say this particular implementation of ai i'm fine with because there are like practical reasons for it of like Mm. if we want darth vader to sound the same which i think ideally we do right like you could just get someone else to do it but i would prefer it if he still sounded like james l jones because it's like an existing character Mm. and james l jones signed this away as an individual while still alive. Right, which said, is key. You can do this. With, you can take my voice and do whatever you want. Plus, 
working voice actors continue to get jobs being Darth Vader, then they change the voice. For me, there are enough pieces of this puzzle where I'm like, I am fine with this because people are involved in it. It's if Disney just were like, we've just decided we don't want to hire him anymore and we've created a thing and we're just going to type some text in and the AI is going to spit out the Darth Vader lines, I would be like, mm, I don't like that. <laughs> that doesn't feel good to me. But like the way they have done this whole thing going around, I, I'm kind of fine with. Like in the same way that I do find it kind of funny, really, that they continue to have Mark Hamill on set during the Mandalorian stuff mm-hmm. to like be Luke Skywalker. Right, but then they completely digitally replace him with the younger version of him. Well, they do multiple things. They have yeah. him do a thing, then they have a lookalike actor do a thing, and then they put a digital recreation of his face on the young actor's face. Kind right. of, really, there is no point in him being here, right? We just like to have him around. I don't know, right? Yeah. But like, there is something funny to me about that. But at the same time, I'm like, at least it is a respect of the person they are digitally recreating. Everyone is in on this. That's fine. Yeah. You know? I, I, I suspect uh, that they're also using Reese Beecher to make Mark Hamill's voice sound like young Mark Hamill. Because that, that's, again, like he does not sound like he did when he was in his 20s. But he also doesn't sound like him now either. <laughs> right. So they're doing something. Yeah. yeah something is, is happening there. But this is also one of these key things of like, okay, it's interesting to realize I had already watched an entire show where a major part of it was AI created. And I mm-hmm. didn't even I didn't even notice or it didn't even cross my mind. Yeah. But it also touches on like what you're saying here is some of the key differences between what's happening in different parts of the world. And a lot of the AI art developments on the Internet are just like a like a crazy Wild West where people are just grabbing whatever they can. And it's like that makes me extremely uncomfortable. Like, okay, so again, I will just say in general ways, I saw a demo of a siri-like voice assistant that was significantly better than things that currently exist oh that's it was very interesting but it was also using the voice of a famous actress just in their demo mode and i got very uncomfortable about that because it's like she's a she's a person who doesn't know that you've made a machine that can make her say anything. Way! <laughs> Hooray! That's right? what we want! Yeah, and it's like, no, no, no. And so a lot of the AI art stuff just feels like that. Like, it's just grabbed everything that exists. And the the thing that I keep thinking of is, like, it it makes a marionette of everyone who's ever put out any kind of art in the public. Mm-hmm. And that's that's like a horror right that that's just a completely horrifying concept that if you have a social media timeline where you've posted stuff guess what there's enough information where someone can make a marionette of you and it can do anything and right now like this can happen without someone's permission and yeah it's totally why like the the darth vader stuff i have no problem with because presumably james earl jones was like fantastic i saw an article with that that was like I read oh. about that, it was the case that he had Great. approved this, signed the rights, like he's good with it. There's a big distinction between giving permission for something like this to be done and just the power of AI to make a marionette of anyone. And there, there's something really horrifying about that. Now, I, I think it becomes 
like other people brought this up as as a as a kind of question there's a boundary that's crossed between doing it to a living person which is is super bad <laughs> it's like yeah i just think that's really awful and immoral it's less bad when the person's dead but it can still be bad if if it's recent i don't quite know what recent means in this context but clearly when we get to a point where we're talking about modifying uh leonardo da vinci's art i don't think there's anything bad there about like making a marionette of leonardo da vinci making a machine that can spit out a ton of leonardo da vinci style paintings i don't think it's possible to ascribe some kind of rule onto this you just feel it when you feel it like i can't tell you what the right time period is and it's also different in every case and you know goes on and on forever like the the fast and furious movie right where Mm -hmm. paul walker had just died right and it was like months later when the movie came out but they used some digital recreation of his face to be able to give him like a tribute and send off. Mm. And I think that there is a little, like it's awkward. I think that movie came out too soon, really. But the whole family kind of seemed to agree. And there's something about like, that was the thing. Same as like um, Princess Leia, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, yeah like that's Princess what I was Leia's send off was the next one after Carrie Fisher had died. Whereas like still, I feel like we're on a fine line here because it's weird. Mm-hmm. But it was recreated from stuff that she did participate in shooting. And at least it's like a tribute. But then if like Princess Leia just continued being a character after that, I'd be like, no, you pushed it too far now, right? Because now that's the making of the marionette, right? Like mm-hmm. she's dead now, but you're continuing to use her. That would be weird. Like there, I don't think it's possible to put rules on like the death of a person. Mm-hmm. I just know that I don't find it particularly comfortable for someone to profit off either uh, financially or publicity-wise somebody who is dead. Like, taking their actual work and, again, divorcing the work required in the copying, right? And just straight up, like, I took this thing and, and I made this thing out of it. Like, and I didn't really have to do anything other than put this image into the AI. There's, there's an uncomfortableness for me in that. Yeah, I, I just wanted to highlight that there's a, there's a, like with many discussions, you can run into areas where there's some kind of spectrum. Yeah, like someone taking the works of Shakespeare and putting that into an AI and making more Shakespeare. I don't care about that. But I can't tell you why I don't care about it either. I just don't. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do want to also add that th- this this dances around a concept that I've been I've been thinking about for years, and I have I have a hard time articulating. But for now, I will just call it as the importance of saying no in art. And I think a lot of artistic projects or the life of creative people are defined as much by what they did as what they didn't do. A thousand no's for every yes. Yeah, there, there is a way to put it, but I, mm. I, th- I think that having spoken to creative people, a lot of them have some internal set of things that they don't do that's not obvious in the work that they create, but it lends a kind of character to their work. I've also just recently went through this where i i killed a what was going to probably be like a 
20 or 30 minute video that was all storyboarded and written out. And part of the reason I killed it is because I realized this was a project to say no to that. Like, yes, I could put it out and I think people would like it, but it, it violated a couple of my own internal, like, I don't want to do this sort of thing in this way, Mm -hmm. even if no one in the audience would have, uh, would have noticed as like, man, that was, that was a hard decision, but I I think that that's what matters. And so even while I think that there is, there's nothing morally wrong about making new Shakespeare plays or new Leonardo da Vinci paintings with AI. I do think that there's something about this concept of making an artist do anything that you want demeans the limits that that person put on their own things. And I'm also like not sure why you even want it. Well, I, I think this is also just a side effect of how easy it can be and will be to create this stuff. Yeah. We're just like out of curiosity, you type some prompts in. I, I curiosity guess what, is different though, right? But what I mean is like when this gets good enough that it can just like make a movie where some things happen. I don't know. Th- this idea of the, like the importance of saying no is also connected to a thing that I see with a lot of particularly TV shows and long running creative projects where I think of this as you can see the audience influence the creators Yeah, that never works. And there's lots of shows where it's like, oh, this is the moment. I can see now that the creators are aware of the audience. And with creative projects, the audience will ask for things that they want that they don't realize in the long run actually destroys or makes worse the thing that they want. And like that sort of I think that can sound super snobbish, but I think it's true. And I've seen it in enough projects where it's like the audience wants something and the creator then goes, oh, I'll do that thing. And the audience responds and you get into this little positive feedback loop of doing the things that the audience wants. Mm -hmm. And none of those decisions mattered individually, but cumulatively, they can make a thing much worse in a way that's hard to pin down. And I just think there's something in AI art where even when there's no problem, I think people can like destroy the things that they love because there's no one to say no. There's mm-hmm. no creator who says these are the limits of my thing. And again, again I, I keep thinking of the Miyazaki movies as a particular example of this. Like if you can make a Miyazaki movie about anything you want, it kind of destroys what those movies are. I'm less moved by the argument about it's important for humans to do these sorts of things. But I I can easily imagine a situation where even if the AI is able to make amazing art, it's it's actually kind of worse for everyone involved, even though it's a thing that that the audience has asked for or that people go like, oh, man, like I wish I could continue the series of movies forever and I can do it by typing into the machine and it will make the movie for me. It's like you'll ruin the thing you love by doing that, by getting what you want all the time without a creative mind to say like, no, this is the limits of this project or no, like this is when the story stopped. Yeah, I mostly agree with that statement like and we spoken about this a lot right like that that idea of the point where the artist becomes aware of the audience we speak about this a lot in regards to like just personally tv show recommendations mm-hmm. and like you know like i know you are very sensitive to this like it's something that i'm familiar with like you point this out and i'm like oh okay that's an interesting 
idea for why the show may have gotten bad in that season. Like, it's not really something I would have thought of. And mm-hmm. I will say that I mostly agree with your thinking here, but not completely. I, I think my my kind of interpretation of this idea that you have is, like, just to add the word, like, mostly to it. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, that I don't... And I'm not saying that you say this, but the way that it sounds makes it sound like a definitive, like, that listening to the audience or, or seeing what the audience want can never make something better. But I don't think it's that way. And I'm not sure you think it's that way, but I just want to state that, right? Where like, yeah, yeah. In our work, there is definitely feedback which helps make something better. And I, and I do this all the time. But there are, sometimes people will ask for me to talk about a thing. And I just know it won't be interesting mm-hmm. because I'm not that person to, to do that. Right. And that, that tends to be a lot of it for me of like, you're telling me you want a thing. I know you won't want it because I know it's not going to be interesting mm-hmm. because either I don't find it interesting or I don't have the knowledge or whatever it might be, you know, like that there is that part of the artist of, oh God, I just called myself an artist. <laughs> there is that part of the creative person right, where they are aware of what they're good at and what they're not and what they think will be ultimately enjoyable for the type of stuff that they create. Yeah. And then they go out and make it. Obviously, like, this this, this is a different kind of thing. I also think it's the bounds of the project. And I, I found, I just recently stumbled upon to me what is just the most perfect example of uh, the artist saying no, which is also a little bit heartbreaking for reasons that will be obvious when I, when I mentioned who it is. J.R.R. Tolkien. I just discovered, I can't believe I never knew this. He started a book that was set after the lord of the rings and so he he wrote the first couple of chapters of of this story and it's it's quite interesting but like he basically he then wrote about he wrote in one of his letters you can get these books of all of his private letters where he discusses a bunch of his thoughts he wrote about why he didn't finish this and the reason he didn't finish it is because, oh, in, in his timeline after the Lord of the Rings, like there's not really much magic left in the world. Uh, he had an idea of who the story would be about, but basically everybody magic is gone and it's just the world of men. And he said like, oh, I could have written it like a totally fine adventure book, but that's, n- but that's not what the world I was trying to create was about. Like he was trying to create this mythology. And writing another story that's what happens after the mythology, he he was like, wait, why am I doing this project? This isn't really what I want to do. Sure, we can continue what happens with a bunch of these characters, but I'm going to say no. And so he just like stopped writing it and said, no, I'm not going to write anymore. Those the stories of what happens after. I'll just fill in some of the details of what happened before. And I I think that's an amazing example. And reading his letter about it, it's just he's very self-aware Sure, the audience would love this. Everybody's asking for like a sequel to Lord of the Rings because it was so great. But it's also so great because he knew where to stop. I just think that's an interesting example. And it would just make me very sad if people were typing into AI generator machines like, give me Tolkien's next book. Like, oh no, please don't. (laughs) Please don't do that. It's bad. This episode of Cortex is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing your business online. 
you can stand out with a beautiful website, engage with your audience, and sell your products, services, the content that you create, whatever it is. Squarespace has got you covered. No matter what type of website you're looking to make, whether it's something for a personal event, maybe you have a business site that you want to create, it doesn't matter. Squarespace can help you. They've got you covered. And it starts with one of their beautiful templates. They're best in class. They're award-winning. It is as easy as browsing the type of site or category of business you want to make a website for, and that will give you the perfect starting place for you to then customize just a few clicks and really make it feel like your own. And then once your website expands and maybe you want to add that online store, you can sell whatever you want, physical, digital goods, it doesn't matter. They have all of the tools that you need to start selling online. And then as your website grows and your visitors start pouring in, you can use insights to grow your business. If you want to know where your site visitors are coming from, where your sales are generating from, which channels are most effective for you, you can analyze all of this in Squarespace. Then when you have the data, you can improve your website and build a marketing strategy based on your top keywords or the most popular products and content that you have available. I love Squarespace. I have been using Squarespace for probably nearly 15 years now for various projects, and I wouldn't go anywhere else. When I want to put something online, they're the first place that I go. I know how to use it. It's so easy. Everything looks great on every type of device. They have awesome apps for you to manage everything. It's the full package. I love it, and I'm confident you're going to love it too. But you don't have to just take my word for it. Go to squarespace.com cortex, and you can sign up for a free trial. No credit card required. You can go in and build your whole website. Then when you want to launch it to the world, use the offer code cortex, and you will get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com cortex, and then when you sign up, use the offer code cortex to get that 10% off your first purchase and show your support for the show. Our thanks to Squarespace for their continued support of Cortex and Relay FM. Hey, do you want to talk about this podcast that you found here, Mike? So I referenced why I'm not worried about my job specifically. Mm-hmm. This has been going around a lot. It is an AI Steve Jobs on an AI Joe Rogan episode. <laughs> uh-huh. And... It is a full podcast created by an AI. I've not really bothered to look into this because I actually think it might be part of a publicity stunt. But nevertheless, mm-hmm. it is a thing that exists. It's 20 minutes long and you can listen to it and I've like skipped around in it. And you know what? It really sounds like Steve Jobs. Like There are points where you can hear that it's not real, right? But like... Mm-hmm. And ultimately, my takeaway from this is who wants this? Like Genuinely, like who wants this? Who wants to hear what Steve Jobs might have said to a fake Joe Rogan? And for me, like, I don't feel concerned about my job because, all right, you can take a version of me and a version of you and we can have them make podcasts forever. But I kind of feel like if that's what you want, I don't know how much you could enjoy the content because it's not real. It's not real conversations. That's what I do for a living is real conversations between real people about things that they care about. And my assumption is the majority of people that listen to my shows want to hear that Mm -hmm. rather than let's imagine what two AI might be talking about instead. For me, that's just so broken from what I imagine people want the content for. And look, if you are that person, you don't need to tell me. Of course I know you exist, right? Like, I'm sure that there are people that would like to just have us on in the background so they could go to sleep. And it's just like, we're just going to have an infinite amount of episodes forever. But realistically, I don't imagine 
that that's going to be a thing that people would genuinely care about enough in the way that people might care about the content that I make. So just coming across this one episode, it honestly made me, even though it showed me it can be done, it made me feel more secure in my own profession. But honestly, in the last episode, I wasn't worrying about my own profession. Mm-hmm. It was more about the idea of creativity in people. That's what I care more about. You sent this to me and I, I took a listen. I did the same thing. I didn't listen to the whole thing all the way through. I, I sort of skipped around. I have a slightly different take on this sort of stuff, which is it doesn't matter how good Steve Jobs on Joe Rogan is to listen to. It's more of just a, a demonstration of proof of concept mm-hmm. of uh, this thing is possible. And once you have a demonstration of proof of concept, guess what? Things only get better. They don't get worse. Yeah. So this this was just like the first real proof of concept demonstration of two people having a podcast conversation. I do have to say, I th- listening to it, I think the Steve Jobs was less good, but like, holy moly, did it nail joe rogan's way of talking well, that makes sense though right the amount of source material yes for joe rogan is almost infinite really yeah i just thought like it's actually interesting to listen to because you can almost hear the fact that there's what a hundred million hours of joe rogan talking and you know the, the database for steve jobs is so much smaller and you can hear that in the two voices is like Especially because I think Rogan has a funny circular way of talking sometimes that it's like, I would never not know that that wasn't him. If you told me, oh, it was Rogan, but it was only just an AI jobs, I would have believed it. But this to me is, is a, again, a good example of this thing where making a marionette of someone is just bad. It's like, hey, guys, whatever you think of Rogan, he's still a person and it's real bad to make like a fake show where he's talking. And it's less bad for steve jobs because he is dead but it's still close enough that it makes me very uncomfortable i just think we're going to see an increasingly large number of these sorts of things where people can make whatever they want and it's only going to become increasingly easy over time and i don't know how this project was made in particular but yeah it's it's the first example of oh it's an ai podcast and with two people where we have enough information to recreate them in in some sense yeah it's a publicity stunt for the company the company that made this Mm -hmm. has an ai text-to-voice generation system that they are trying to sell yeah i mean that's that's not surprising yeah but it's it's also interesting just how fast so much of this is being commercialized yeah i stumbled across a um I thought, oh God, like how brutal is this? But it's it's a company that makes AI people who will read quite convincingly scripts where it looks like it's a talking head segment. And the whole idea is, oh, you can have all of your corporate training material delivered in this way, where there's like an AI person who will talk through whatever it is you need to onboard your new employees. There's something about that to me, which is like, it's very convincing, but it also feels like what a horrible dystopian nightmare. Yeah, <laughs> where it's yeah. like you as an employee sign up with the company is like oh hey we didn't even take the time to film a person going through our own training materials we just gave it to an ai and they made a fake person who you get to listen to explain your job to you enjoy your training i know it's just so awful we value you (laughs) i just want to read from the podcast ai that kind of description of the show Mm -hmm. whether you're a machine learning enthusiast just want to hear your favorite topics covered in a new way or even just want to listen to voices from the past brought back to life, this is the podcast for you. Right. <laughs> All right. 
do you want to hear our ghoulish marionettes say what <laughs> say what we made them say? But it's just like if you are a fan of Steve Jobs, which I think is who they are pitching this to, right? Why do you want to hear him talk about things he never spoke about? Like, what do you value from that other than mm. just like hearing the voice? Like, if you just want to hear his voice, just go to YouTube and watch like commencement speeches or interviews or whatever. Like, I don't understand why you want to hear him talk about things he never spoke about. It's not his opinion. There is no opinion of him in this. They've built all of this from things he said, but you're just taking words he used and just putting them together in a new way. It's not actually his opinion. And I just, I I find it so strange. Since the last episode, I have much more strongly onboarded the concept of try to only read and consume and listen to and watch media that you know has been produced by a human. <laughs> yeah, and how did that do for you with Obi-Wan? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like, it, like it's, it sneaks in there, yeah. but at least it's like, oh, I, I know humans made the show. <laughs> sure. Yeah, at least you got that part, right? Yeah. Maybe not all humans, all of it, all the time, but like enough. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so again, like this, this idea that went from like, that's crazy to, oh, I guess this is wise advice to live by has accelerated quite quickly in my life. Yeah. And... Yeah, it's it's kind of a weird, oh, make sure you know it's a person who wrote or made this thing. So yeah, I'm, I am trying to onboard that as a concept because I think not onboarding that as a concept is part of what is going to lead to uh, AI doom for us all. Oh God, we still want to talk about AI. All right, yep, okay. This episode of Cortex is brought to you by Fitbod. Between balancing your work life, your family life, and everything else going on in your life, it can be hard to make fitness a priority. Personal fitness shouldn't be about competing with other people. What you need is a program that is tailored for you, working with you, and not against you, and that's why you need FitBud. You don't want to have to look to other people and do what they're doing. You don't want to have to be told exactly what to do. You don't want to have to do these boring things every single day. You don't want that rigid structure. You want something that is flexible, something that adjusts, that is dynamic, that is your own fitness plan that you can have access to from anywhere in a beautiful app with wonderful HD video tutorials shot from multiple angles so every exercise that you want to learn is super simple. This is all why you need Fitbod. They use data to create and adjust that plan for you. It's crafted to be unique for you exactly. Their app is super easy to learn. It integrates with your smartwatch, your Apple Watch, or Wear OS watch. It integrates with apps like Strava, Fitbit, and Apple Health. Everything's super awesome. I love Fitbod. It really set me on a different path to my fitness journey when I started using it. It, what I really liked was that there was a variety there. Like that variety was super important to me. Previously, I'd used apps and videos and stuff. It's just the same thing every day and I found that really boring. But I was learning new things. And while at the same time, it's also mixing up with those variety of exercises so you're not overworking or underworking anything. It's really clever. Personalized training of this quality can be expensive. Fitbot is just twelve ninety nine a month or seventy nine ninety nine a year, but you can get twenty five percent off your membership by going and signing up today at fitbod.me slash cortex. So go now and get your customized fitness plan at fitbod.me slash cortex. That is twenty five percent off that you will get by signing up at fitbod.me slash cortex. Twenty five percent off. Our thanks to Fitbod for their support of this show and Relay FM. Yes, I do want to talk about Doom for us all, but partly because it's 
clearing up a little bit of confusion from from last time as well. Okay. So one of the things we discussed last time was stable diffusion making images like here is the filming of NASA landing on the moon and creating fake stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think a totally fair criticism of that that I saw from people is, hey, Photoshop exists, you know, like we can make those images now. We don't need an AI art system to generate them for us. If you would be convinced by a good Photoshop, what's the difference from being convinced by an AI art system about something that isn't real in the world? So what I want to portray here is I think Doom comes in like three phases. Phase one, I think, will be just pollution of the public information space. I think it's sort of a general confusion. And what makes the difference between AI art and something like Photoshop is the scale and the cost. So right now, if someone wants to try and put out a bunch of misinformation or create evidence to back a conspiracy theory, there still needs to be effort that goes into creating that thing. Like you were saying, Mike, you need to learn these skills as part of your art for how to create a piece of misinformation to put out in the world. (laughs) And I think what I kind of expect if I'm projecting a bunch of this stuff forward is the scale of this potential misleading images and misleading text that were AI generated is just vastly beyond what we can imagine now. And I think in the modern world, like a lot of people have been driven kind of crazy just from the selection of what information they're presented. Like, you know, People on social media can kind of like drive themselves crazy by just going down rabbit holes and being continually presented with information that agrees with them. And that's just by like selecting the things that they're seeing that actual human beings have created. But what I'm kind of thinking might happen here is that when you're able to generate a huge amount of content, just as right now, companies intentionally A-B test what they show you for engagement. Mm. Not even on purpose, but AI-generated content will effectively be unintentionally A-B tested for convincingness. How convincing is this sequence of words in whatever idea it's trying to spread? And I really do view a lot of this stuff as the kind of concept of memes, of ideas. They evolve, and they spread, and they mutate, and... Their spreading in the world doesn't have anything to do with how true they are. It has to do with how convincing they are. Imagine hooking up Twitter's algorithm to a text AI. Yeah, I think that's going to happen. That every time you pull to refresh, it just gives you a bunch of other nonsense. Mm -hmm. That is truly horrifying to me as a thought. I think we're going to see that. I think we're going to see that or we're going to see something very much like it. I mean, look, the AI video stuff that we saw before, do you think TikTok won't start doing that the moment that it becomes engaging to people? That's a a really good point. That's actually the most likely of all of them, I think, to occur. Yeah. To just automatically generate 20 second, 30 second videos every time a person refreshes Mm -hmm. and just keep doing it for whatever keeps that person engaged. I think we're going to see that. 
even if it's not the companies directly doing it themselves, you'll have entities on Twitter where it's like, oh, it's a bot, but it's, you know, it's acting like it's a person and it's just existing in the world and it's doing this kind of unintentional A-B testing for convincingness. And the ones that are more convincing for whatever reason will just spread better. So I, re- I really think that is a kind of like, I think a lot of the criticism is people want to know like, Gray, like you love technology. Why aren't you behind this stuff? I used to be a real technological optimist, but I've changed my mind on a bunch of that stuff. And and this is one area in particular where, and I want to be clear here, I don't think it's malicious. I don't think it's necessarily that someone's out there trying to do bad, but I think the ability to create hundreds of millions of memes in in the way of like just a concept that can spread at the drop of a hat is just bad for the public information space and the world has barely survived social media in some ways like that has made stuff so bad with how people think about the world and this is that just taken to the next level by a huge order of magnitude so I suspect that'll be one of the first ways that this becomes obviously bad over time. Like once it progresses out of the stage of just being an interesting toy. My hope is that for whatever reason, we're in the part of the technological development where it looks like it's an exponential graph, but it's rapidly going to level off at an S curve. And we discover, oh, there's parts of this that were way harder than we thought. That's where I hope this is going, but... <laughs> you show me the signs of that one on the next episode, then. Well, I'm in this position where I feel a little bit like, oh, I'm, I'm like a crazy person talking into a microphone about this stuff. But I, I have spoken to some of the top people in the world in this area, and they're very concerned, is the way that I would put it. Mm-hmm. And talking to people, I was trying to tease out this concept of where do we think we are on this curve? Is this the start of the exponential or are there obvious problems ahead? And the answer was pretty universally, oh, the as far as we can tell, the exponential has barely begun because the thing, part of the reason it's making such fast progress is because the the work being done right now is still in the realm of, oh, hey, you, you get into work and like, what's the first thing you think of that could make this better? And you try it and it makes it better. That's just like an indication that we're at the start of an exponential curve. So yeah, I think we're going to have like a bunch of confusion about this stuff. I think that transitions into genuine economic problems as particularly language models get better and better and better at doing all the kinds of work that humans do, which is largely knowledge work. You know, and, and it's it's funny, like I made Humans Need Not Apply eight years ago now i think and it's been on the back of my mind about you know revisiting that at at some point and i was kind of thinking like oh i don't know how relevant this video still is but having rewatched it it's like oh no i I put it back like to be featured on my channel under one of like the most watched videos because it's like no no all this ai stuff and all of the language stuff like makes this way more concerning i think the lesson learned there has simply been that Physical automation is slower to progress for a bunch of reasons, but all of the knowledge worker stuff is coming along very, very fast. I just know that there are companies that are very explicitly targeting low-level knowledge work and then will be 
progressing further and further up the chain as fast as they can with better and better language models to do all sorts of things that people can do. I understand that lots of people just fundamentally disagree with me on this point of economics, that jobs can't be replaced because humans have infinite needs and always want more things. I understand that argument. I just don't agree with it. And I think AI just breaks some of the fundamental assumptions that are built into that model of as we get better machines of all kinds, we just increase the quality of life and increase our desires. Like, I just don't think that that's universally true. So, yeah, I, I think we're going to end up with some some really major problems in the economy, particularly in the knowledge worker part of that economy. And look, we don't need to talk about it today because we've talked about it enough. But I think once you start encroaching on AI systems that are good enough to replace most human work, you really start encroaching on the kinds of things that can lead to the extinction of the human race. Maybe that's a little too heavy for today, but that's that's kind of my having thought it through of like, what are the three phases of where does this go? It's confusion of the public information space, destruction of the economy, extinction of the species. It's one, two, three. Oh, boy. <laughs> How you feeling, Mike? Not great. No? No, I didn't want to do another hour and a half on this, to be honest. <laughs> but I guess this is who we are now. <laughs> yeah. C- can I just ask you, though, like, how crazy does that sound to you? No, it doesn't. And that's why I don't like it. I don't have optimism about this area of technology. I do not think that this is a thing that will produce much good. We can leave it there for now, then. Mm-hmm. On with the show. <laughs> it's only been an hour and a half. <laughs> Just some quick follow-up from the last thing we talked about on the previous episode. <laughs> okay, on the lighter side of things, mm-hmm. what is a podcast, Mike? Why? Why am I doing this one again, too? What is this? We just relive the horrors of the previous episode? I feel so badly for you, Mike. Last episode, you stumbled into a terrible mistake, which was attempting to describe, but what is a podcast? (laughs) Well, the real issue was I put two topics together that seemed related, but they were unrelated. Right, yeah. This is always the dangers of speaking extemporaneously, and you're just sort of like in the middle of a conversation and you say some things. And so anyway, we ended up talking for a while about like, but what is a podcast? What must it be in order for it to be the platonic ideal of a podcast? Mm-hmm. And this this caught people's attention. And you can click the link in the show notes. A Cortexan sent in what I absolutely adored is this, oh, I saw this. podcast alignment chart. And I read this and was like, I think I agree with absolutely everything on this chart. <laughs> this nails what I wanted, I think, to kind of get across, but maybe didn't do a great job of doing. I don't know. So in the great tradition of memes, there's a meme where people make the alignment chart for various things. And I think this started with what is still the fantastic example of the sandwich alignment chart. So you have two axes in the chart for the sandwich, which is ingredients and structure. So it ranges from like ingredient purist to ingredient rebel. 
And then you have structure purist. A sandwich must have the classic sandwich shape, two pieces of bread but with toppings in between. And then like structure rebel, any kind of food enveloped in any way is a sandwich. Oh, like a uh, hot dog? Yeah. So th- this, this is like, is a hot dog a sandwich? And hot dog falls on the sandwich alignment chart of ingredient neutral and structure neutral. Wait, it's, this is a very intriguing way that you've introduced this. Isn't this just like the chaotic evil, chaotic good thing? Yes, that's where this comes from. That's the origin. Oh, of it. right. Like, I-, I misunderstood you and thought you were saying that the sandwich one was the origin. I was like, I don't think you're right there. <laughs> no, 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 no. Right, right. <laughs> I, I always forget because I never played D&D. Chaotic, neutral, chaotic, good. That's the no, thing. but the, the two axes, it's it's evil and good and then lawful and chaotic. Is that, that's, that's, those the two axes on the traditional one? I think so. But the sandwich alignment chart is the meme, right? Which is like, oh, here is from which other things birth. And so what I, I love on the internet is people will get into an argument about like, what is thing? Is a hot dog a sandwich? Is a Pop-Tart a sandwich? Is a chicken wrap a sandwich? And someone will come up with like, here's the alignment chart to try to describe where all of these things fit in. And so someone did this for podcasts, the podcast alignment chart. The two axes are distribution method and media type. So do you want to run through some of these, Mike? Where do you fit on the podcast alignment chart? Uh, oh, man. I think I was... I feel like you were making an argument for traditional distribution method, traditional media type, which is an audio RSS feed is a podcast. No, because I don't... I think I am a modernist. Distribution modernist, media type, traditionalist. Any audio that's subscribable is a podcast. No, I think I'm modern modern. Any audio or video that's subscribable is a podcast. Oh, so my YouTube channel is a podcast. That's what you're saying? No, you see, that's yeah. No, that I'm 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 modern traditionalist because that's the thing of like, but it gets into a uh, an issue for me is that I watch videos that I consider podcasts. Mm-hmm. It's the any I would see. I would phrase it as any audio or video that's subscribable can be a podcast that would be my personal definition i think Mm -hmm. would be closer to how i feel but i think i'm more traditionalist modernist which is any audio that's subscribable is a podcast Um, no but then it's got audio books in here this is very complicated i don't (laughs) (laughs) i would say any audio or video that somebody wants to call a podcast that you can subscribe to can be a podcast i think that's how i actually personally sit now Uh i think that works for me I really love these charts go kind of crazy, right? I think the problem with the podcast one is a two-dimensional surface is not enough to express the entirety of what it wants to be. Mm -hmm. You need a third axis, which I think is something like consumption intention. Yeah. So so for me, like I would be like a traditionalist here, right? That the consumption intention is audio only. Like that, that to me is a really key characteristic of what is a podcast. It has to be intended as an audio first experience, which isn't quite captured on, on this chart. But then it can be a video. It can be yes. a Spotify exclusive. Yeah. See, I don't know. I, no? uh. I am very sympathetic to the position you were expressing last time, which is there's, or at least I thought it was the position you're expressing last time that there's something about it needs to be generally accessible. 
I think for me, the example in my mind that really sticks out is Audible does these things that they call podcasts, which are like little shows that you can subscribe to in the Audible yeah. app. I don't know why they call them podcasts. <laughs> I really yeah. don't get that one at all. I've listened to some of them. Like they're they're fine. I haven't found one that's amazing or anything. But they're also, I don't know, there's some part in my brain which is just like, this is not a podcast at all. It's just original audio content. Yeah, it's an audio. And they do call them Audible Originals. Yeah. And they call them podcasts. And I just wonder if maybe they should just stick to one of those descriptors. But Yeah. But anyway, like those are the ones that really clang in my brain of Mm -hmm. like, but what's the key thing there? And I think the fact that they're only available on audio really makes them not a podcast to me. Okay. Well, then Joe Rogan. Yeah. Is that a podcast? Ah. (laughs) Damn you, Mike. Right? Because I would say yes, it is, even though it's a Spotify exclusive. Ah, curse you. (laughs) That is the perfect counterexample to my position. (laughs) So that's why I feel like, for me, there is the third (laughs) axis, which is like intent. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's when, if we go on this third axis of intent, I would sit in the modernist, where it could be like any audio or video that's subscribable can be a podcast, but it's on creator's intent. Yeah, but see, look, just to make things hard, it has to be phrased in order to fit the meme as is a podcast. You can't put in these weasel words of can, right? The, the purpose of the alignment chart is to definitively answer what is a podcast. <laughs> well, I'll tell you now, it doesn't. <laughs> I really love looking at this chart. The traditionalist traditionalist is an audio RSS feed is a podcast. Mm-hmm. And then you, then you start moving in these reasonable directions of any audio that's subscribable is a podcast. And then as you get into the radicalist ones, it just gets very funny, right? Like yep. any audio available on the internet is a podcast. <laughs> Anything that you can subscribe to is a podcast. And my personal favorite, yeah. the radicalist radicalist <laughs> is anything on the internet is a podcast, which made me laugh so hard when I first uh, Yeah, this, that got me. Because uh, you know what? Like that fits with some people that I've come across in my life. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. I also enjoyed the, the Cortexans like giggling over this one where people are like, this comment on this Reddit thread is a podcast, right? Because I'm a <laughs> radicalist radicalist. <laughs> I thought this was fantastic. And thanks to XD1936 for posting it. I got, it got a really good laugh out of it. And I think, um, yeah, it was, it was just a fun way to try to encapsulate the conversation from last time. This episode of Cortex is brought to you by Wealthfront. Is your bank keeping money that could be yours? If you're earning less than Wealthfront's 2.55% APY, they might be. Here's why. Federal interest rates have been going up this year, which means banks have had the opportunity to earn more on your savings. Where's all that extra money going? Well, according to the FDIC, the average U.S. bank has only raised their rates to 0.17% this year, while Wealthfront is now offering their clients a rate that's about 15 times higher with the Wealthfront cash account. Of course, you have a choice. You could let your bank keep the extra money they're making, or you could move your savings to a high-yield account like Wealthfront and earn 2.55% APY. 
I think that having your savings in order is really just a great thing. It's one less thing to have to think about. So I think you should check it out. It's super easy to sign up. Plus, you get unlimited transfers that are completely fee-free and up to $1 million in FDIC insurance through partner banks. There are no account fees, no minimum balance. And if you sign up at wealthfront.com slash Cortex, you get a free $50 bonus of an initial deposit of $500. Don't let your bank keep the interest you could be earning. Join nearly half a million people who already use Wealthfront to earn 15 times more than the average U.S. bank. That's Wealthfront.com slash Cortex to get started and earn your free $50 bonus. That's Wealthfront.com slash Cortex. This has been a paid endorsement for Wealthfront. Our thanks to Wealthfront for the support of this show and Relay FM. We are hurtling towards the end of the year. Uh, yes, alarmingly fast. And this is the final regular episode of Cortex this year. Don't remind me, Mike. So if you have more to say about AI... Oh, God, Gray, where's AI art going to be in January? Oh, oh no, my God. By January, we're going to be at step two of my three steps to the apocalypse. So. Excellent. Can't Great. wait for it. So maybe that's why like, we had to spend the best part of two hours doing follow-up because we're not going to do it now. <laughs> right? Yeah, I guess so. Let's, let's say that. That was the plan. We didn't just end up talking about it for forever. There is a possibility we might do something more text getmortex.com i can't say that for sure because i don't know what we're going to do over the next two months except for what i know we're going to do which is state of the apps Mm -hmm. november yearly themes december yep so on that note for yearly themes i wanted to take this as a time to suggest a method to people for preparing for their yearly theme Ooh. If you don't know what a yearly theme is, I will put a video in the show notes where Gray explains what yearly themes are, but we're going to get to it again, obviously, in December, so I don't want to talk about it now. Mm -hmm. But I am personally at the point of my year now where I'm preparing my yearly theme. The way I do this is I have it in my mind to start noting down things that I'm happy about in my work life and personal life and things that I find frustrating in those as well, and things I would like to change. So I keep this as an Apple note. It's in my yearly themes Apple note. But I have it just playing in my mind that as I'm bumping into things that are good or bad, that I would like to continue or stop, I write them all down. I just write them down. I don't need to draw any comparisons to them yet. I just start writing them down. So I end up with a list of things, maybe 20 things or so over the space of a few weeks or a month that are in my head. And some of them, they're not even things I bump into, but because I'm in this kind of reviewing mode, things just pop up in my head randomly. I'm like, oh, that's a thing. I'll write that down. Then as we get towards November or so, I start to review this list of things and note the similarities where so I can tie some similarities between things. Be like, oh, that's actually related to this, or that is similar to this. I then use these links as the basis to build my theme. So what do I think I could do next year to address some of these common issues that I have, or these common things that I would like to do more of? So if you struggle to come up with creating yearly theme, this is my top tip. It's how I do mine every year. I don't know if this is asking for spoilers for the theme episode, which I don't want, mm. but I just, I feel like I would like some concrete examples of the kinds of things that you're writing down that you end up thinking about. And they don't, they don't have to be examples for this year. I will give you some examples for this year, but okay. I'm not going to give you so many that I think would spoil my theme. Good. I want to spend more time on product creation and design. That's one. Mm-hmm. I want to listen to more music. 
I'm happy with how I've looked after my health and want to do more of that. I want to be smarter about my scheduling and the days that I'm in the office. These are the kinds of things that I write down. Okay, so presumably then the the way you have this happen is there's some frustration about the scheduling. And then I guess you notice that and add it to this file. Is that, yeah. the, is that the system? Mm-hmm. Mm, okay. Like all these are at the moment, are just it's just an outline, like a bullet points of things, mm-hmm. right? And I write a bunch of notes down. I write some context down. And so then I start reading through these and I'm like, oh, hang on a minute. This can relate to this and this. Or like, mm. hey, I've written a bunch of times here that I'm unhappy about this kind of thing hmm. in like a bunch of different ways. So can I address that thing? Hmm. Okay, actually, interesting. I think I should frame this thought a bit differently because I have, I have a notes file where when it occurs to me things that I may want to discuss on the theme episode, I make a note of them. I guess this is just a different kind of the same idea of like things about my own personal theme there. But no, I, I like that as as a have a place to collect what you notice about your life, which also then just encourages you to notice more. Might be a way to try to pitch it to people who are as the end of the year comes hurtling towards us. And if they've never tried a theme before, might want to think about that over the next two and a half months. Mm-hmm. They're going to start a theme at the beginning of the year. It's like, just have a note somewhere to put down things that you notice about your life as a way to get started. And then you have something to look over and try to synthesize later. It's not about any particular moment. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. I think that this is makes something that's more likely to stick on because it's it's actually related to things that you've experienced mm. and pushes it further away from the New Year's resolution idea. Because New Year's resolutions are typically created from whole cloth. Like this just like I have this aspirational idea of myself that I would like to be this different kind of person and I'll right. just go and live that life. Right. Where what I'm suggesting that you do is how do you live right now? What frustrates you about things that are happening right now? What would you like to be better in your actual life right now? Mm. And try and think about what that might be. It's related to something that's actually happening rather than something that you look forward to just imagine yourself as a different person. Yeah, that, that's a good distinction. Because yes, again, also the New Year's resolutions have the feeling to me of homework assignments that you forgot about until the morning of. And it's like, oh no, I need to write an essay about what I'm going to do this year. Yep. Whereas this makes me think of... Um, It's actually kind of popping into my head the way some researchers have tried to study how happy people are by messaging them at random points throughout the weeks or the years of just like, hey, right now, how do you feel? And this is closer to that. It's like a continual process of, hey, notice in your life how you're feeling and just make a little note of it. And then later you can have some stuff to review. So I I like that. I I think that's good. I think that's a good suggestion for people looking for a place to onboard where to start instead of just trying to create a theme out of whole cloth after they've listened to the theme episode. Oh, Gray, there's something I've got to tell you about before we wrap up today. Yeah? I didn't know about this. It somehow seemed to have slipped by everyone. In iOS 16, there is now a Dvorak software keyboard on the phone. Oh, yeah? Yeah. (laughs) Let me grab my phone here. Uh... (laughs) It's in the settings app, right? You uh-huh. have to go to settings, and then I think it's general, it's got a general keyboard. keyboard, and then whatever your setting is, like English UK or English US or whatever, 
Right. If you tap that, you get the option of QWERTY, AZERTY, QWERTS, and Dvorak. Oh, I see. So it's not a new keyboard. It's under... I would never have found You that. could probably add it as a new keyboard. No, it's not. So, I just, that's what I was just trying to do. Oh. Oh, God, I hate it. Oh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's horrifying. Do you still use Dvorak? Of, co- of course I use Dvorak, Mike. <laughs> so your like keyboard on your desk is set in the Dvorak layout? I feel like we haven't spoken about that in a really long time. I've kind of forgotten. <laughs> yes. My, my, well, my keyboard, if you look at it, the current one I'm using is, it has a QWERTY layout, but the keys are mapped to the Dvorak setting. You which, are a monster. No, no, no. I actually, I've decided that's that's best. That's that's the better way to go. I've stopped no. getting keyboards. Look, I think there's, there's only two ways to go. QWERTY visual layout or blank. Right, like the, like no, nothing on any of the keys. Why can't you use the Dvorak visual layout? Uh, um, I think I could build you a keyboard one day that that would be laid out this way. Yeah. Okay. I guess here's I'm, I'm trying to I was just trying to articulate why after after years and years of doing all sorts of different things, why have I settled on this? The answer is that keyboard shortcuts are funny in a lot of applications. So there's something in the system level where a keyboard shortcut will either trigger based on the letter that the key represents or it will trigger based on the location that the key is. Uh You can see this explicitly in some things like Final Cut where you can reprogram the key based on letter or location. So I guess the way I use it is that it is I'm I'm just not having I'm struggling trying to think of a specific example that's not Final Cut, but I know it comes up where it's useful to be able to see what does the keyboard look like for everyone in the whole wide world, sometimes for keyboard shortcuts like that does come up where I am glad that the layout is a QWERTY layout. And since I touch type, I don't look at the keyboard. It doesn't matter when I'm actually writing what the keys look like at all which is why i have gone with the completely blank keyboard sometimes which i do think is cool but can be annoying for keyboard shortcuts i have a question for you yep well because one i'll come back to the keyboard shortcuts thing because i i know how to fix that depends on what you use anyway when you are using your dvorak layout what is the copy command okay so for me it's command i is what it would look like on a qwerty keyboard that's copy oh because oh okay Yes, I know what you're saying now. You are actually hitting still Command C, though, is what I'm asking. That's kind yes. of more, work, but it's in a different place. Okay, it's it's in a different place. So one of the things that exists now, which I don't know if it's actually a good idea for any other lunatics who might want to switch their keyboard layouts. One of the things that computers have gotten better at over years is there are now explicit layouts, which are on the Mac. It's called something like Dvorak preserve shortcuts Mm. so it's like you type in dvorak but it totally ignores the keyboard layout for all keyboard shortcuts it would be like command j looking at the dvorak layout right in that scenario where it's preserving the location of the key uh yeah it's it's funny it's like i can't look i is c what what's the what's the complication i'm looking at i'm looking at a dvorak layout on wikipedia and like Uh it you know j is in the is in the location that c is on a qwerty keyboard and so you would hit i guess command j because what it's saying is the way i've understood the way you've explained that is like 
it's keeping the physical location of the key, no matter what the key actually says it is. Yeah. Okay. So I, I just looked it up. Like, what is the actual thing called in uh, the system setting? So on the Mac, you can set it as something called Dvorak QWERTY command. So I presume that what it's yeah. doing there is whenever you hit command, it ignores the Dvorak layout and reverts to the QWERTY layout. That seems horribly complicated. Uh, yeah. All of this to say, one day, because I want to build your keyboard one day, just mm-hmm. for fun. I would choose a keyboard where I can change the programming of the keyboard. Like this mm-hmm. is a thing that exists. Like the boards that I build these days, they tend to all support a piece of software called Via, which overrides the layout on the keyboard. Mm-hmm. So it's not relying on the Mac. So if you hit any shortcut in any app, it's going to register as the key that is on the Dvorak layout. It doesn't matter that you would try and do some kind of key binding in software. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Right? So like one of the things you're saying is like, for example, if you hit some kind of keyboard shortcut in Final Cut, it's going to assume that's QWERTY even if you've set to Dvorak because it's there's like a software in between the two of them that's trying to communicate it. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying the hardware of the keyboard would communicate to the computer. So I am convinced it would get it correctly it would always hit correctly. Okay, I feel like I'm not 100% understanding, but mm-hmm. there's there's also like so many layers here. Yes. One of the other problems is, I don't know if any of the Cortexans are able to help me out with this, if anyone's already done this. Here's the the maximum level of crazy, right? I use the Dvorak layout, but all the, I've learned all the keyboard commands, all the basic system commands with the Dvorak layout, so I'm not pressing the regular buttons that everybody knows. However, in Final Cut, it, the way that the programmers laid out all the keyboard shortcuts that do things, it makes sense physically where they are on the keyboard. Whereas like command copy, command uh, paste, like it doesn't really matter if those two are next to each other. But there's tons of stuff in Final Cut, which is like trim from the start of the clip, trim from the end of the clip. And you want to have those keys like next to each other on opposite sides. There's a lot of like physicality of this. So... In Final Cut, I've been trying to slowly build up my own custom mapping, which is to make it so that when I am using the Dvorak layout, it's still acting as though it's a QWERTY layout just for the Final Cut shortcuts. So every time I try to learn a new Final Cut shortcut, I try to go in and like change what it is. But I've wondered, like, has someone just done this? Like, is there a QWERTY for Dvorak remapping of all the final cut shortcuts that someone has just done because i could tell like i'm getting into a situation of oh this is a little bit inconsistent so anyway i've just wondered if like a person has done that work for me and there's also some weird system stuff that i've done with a few of the shortcuts anyway there's a bunch of these weird little problems and i also have this minor annoyance listen before i say this annoyance I understand. I understand why Apple did it. You don't have to leave me comments for why they did it. I understand. It's still annoying. But it used to be that Apple, when you had different keyboard layouts, it had a little country flag to represent each of the layouts. And so the U.S. keyboard layout had a little U.S. flag. And the Dvorak one was just DV. And they made the change so that they don't use country flags for languages. Now, again, I get it. 
but it actually causes a huge annoyance because in my menu bar, I want to see which layout the keyboard is using. Is it using Dvorak or is it using US? Because sometimes I do switch between those two layouts. And now I can't visually see instantly that the keyboard is on US layout versus Dvorak layout. And it's maddening because it's just a little box and the box either says DV or it says US. And like, no, it was so much better when it was black dv and that's dvorak and then there was a little american flag when it's the u.s layout so it's super frustrating but anyway all of that aside i'm looking at this dvorak layout on my phone and i hate everything about it i don't think dvorak was made for phones i think all of the advantages for typing dvorak with two hands i don't feel like they translate for two thumbs on a phone i think maybe the qwerty layout is actually superior for the phone Yeah, all of the vowels are next to each other on the Dvorak one. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to type some words here. By the way, I have two applications for you that can restore those flags. Oh, really? Yeah, one is called Keyboard Switcheroo. Mm -hmm. The other is called Colorful Input Menu Flags. They're both in the Mac App Store. Oh, okay. (laughs) Sold. Two (laughs) enterprising developers who created applications (laughs) to bring that back. I'd like to thank... Glenn Fleischman at Macworld for writing the article that because I, I know I'd seen these and I, so I just did a quick Google while you were upset uh, and actually on keyboard switcheroo mm-hmm. they have in their app screenshots US French German Dvorak so mm. you get a little US flag or a little DV for Dvorak oh good I'm, I'm glad to know I'm not the only person who was annoyed by this mm-hmm. so I'll, I'll definitely check those out thank you you can always rely on Mac developers to solve the little annoyances <laughs> yeah you can what I was just thinking here is with iOS I think QWERTY on the phone I think it does make sense I feel like the weirdness of the way QWERTY is laid out to sort of slow you down although i think that that's overplayed as a story of of why it exists i think that actually works as an advantage for typing with your thumbs on a tiny phone screen but i am glad that this exists for the ipad i might actually switch it on the ipad because that's the place where it's been annoying big keyboard and and that's more like a larger keyboard there is what you're more used to for dvorak right bigger keyboards like a computer keyboard yeah can you get MacBooks in Dvorak? I don't think so. I don't think they. I don't think they sell that. I'm pretty sure it's, you have to just pick between American layout and the English layout when I'm right. when I'm buying the keyboards, which is the thing I'm always very careful about. Like, please give me the U.S. layout one. I do not want the U.K. layout one. Huh. There's no little ha huh there. Like the American Enter is clearly superior. <laughs> I build all of my keyboards in NC. My laptop is in the British layout. But I think in the future, I might try and remember to just order them in US layout because that's what I'm much more used to now. Wait a second. You're saying you build your keyboards in the US layout, yeah. NC layout. Yeah. But you but you get the MacBook keyboards with the English layout? I don't think about it when I'm buying them. Ah, uh, okay. I think I will now in the future, right? Because I I'm, I'm get more annoyed because it's I'm switching between something I'm not used to. Yeah. And, the, you know, with the keyboards that I build, most of them are just more available and easier to build in ANSI layout. So I'm just mm-hmm. used to it now. So the US English layout. But I never think about it. And obviously the default on the British Mac store yeah. is the British layout. So I don't think about it. And I just, I buy what's the default. But I think I want to start changing it. It doesn't look like they do Dvorak. It's not in their options. I, I don't think I'll be using this on my phone. I think it's worse on the phone. But okay. I, will, I will definitely try it out on the iPad when the iPad comes out. Because that, that's where it's it's more of a problem. But 
I mostly don't really think about it very much because it's just been so long. Like this mm. has been my entire life. You know, the the last time it caused me problems was when I worked at a school and had to switch between the QWERTY and Dvorak typing keyboards a bunch for using different computers. But even then, it was not the worst. Like, I just learned to touch type while not looking and then sort of type while looking at the keyboard as two different modes that my brain could switch between. But I wonder why on earth they added Dvorak to the now to, to yeah. iOS 16 now. It's a very funny, like... Strange. Why did it take 16 attempts? You know what I mean? Like, why... 16 versions in is Dvorak having some resurgence that we're not aware of like why it is odd right yeah I'm not not even like because I'm not even sure if I was suggesting to someone now who had RSI problems if Dvorak is the way to go yeah I I always forget I think it's Colmac or something that there's another one which is like definitely worth investigating if you're learning now versus Dvorak and it's also like a feature that I don't know why but it took all the way until now for people to notice it it seems like there's been a bunch of articles written because it was kind of discovered but mm-hmm. that means it went through the whole beta process without people seeming to know about it i don't know yeah. Odd. The, the, the thing that's also confusing about it is if they did add why didn't they add something like colmac i mean look i i don't know a lot about programming ios to add additional keyboard layouts but if you're going to add something like dvorak how hard is it to also add the other popular one of these if you're going to do it. Well, but isn't Dvorak like the popular one though? I don't know if that's true or not. Mm. I feel like it must be, or at least in the requests that they get. Or some high up executive like Tim Cook is a Dvorak guy and like he'd had enough, you know? Yeah, I mean, with Dvorak I just always feel like there's dozens of us. Dozens! (laughs) You've seen The Godfather, right? No. What? I've not seen The Godfather. Huh. I've just never really been that interested. Okay. Well, in The Godfather, this <laughs> is pointless <laughs> for you now, but in The Godfather, there is a moment. Or is it Godfather 2? I think it's Godfather 2, which I assume you also have not seen, because why would you have, right? Uh, yeah, th- that, that's a correct. Yeah, I've seen the yeah. third one, but not the first or the second one. <laughs> You'll be, you're joking, right? I am joking, yes. Good, 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 good. There is a moment where a bunch of things happen, and uh, the line is, we're settling all family business. Mm-hmm. there's a line about settling all family business. And I feel like that is today's episode. We have just settled a bunch of business, right? A lot of follow-up has been dealt with, right? <laughs> We've spoken about Dvorak, right? Like we're just settling the business before the year ends for us. Mm. Like very regular episodes. Now we go to the specials. Yeah, that's true. There are two more pieces of family business that I would like to settle before we finish today. One is to thank every Cortexan who donated to our Sent You campaign. Uh, overall, throughout the month of September, we raised $706,397.10. All of us absolutely astounded. This is the most money we've ever raised. It's, un- it's unbelievable. Yeah. It's an it's a incomprehensible amount of money. So we have now not only passed $2 million raised... Uh, in the last wow. four years, we have now hit two point two million dollars <laughs> raised in the last four years. It's it's incredible. It's just incredible to think mm-hmm. that the relay listenership has raised that much money for St. Jude. So yeah, th- thank you, thank you to everyone who donated to the campaign. Yeah, that's completely mind blowing. You know, it seemed for a while that it was like okay, like. We're going to raise a lot of money. We're going to meet our goal, but we're probably not going to exceed. 
mm-hmm. because you know there there is definite economic challenges right now around the world, and we were thinking, okay, that that's going to be that, and then it just the last couple of days, even like the last couple of weeks, it just exploded, like as people were just getting their final totals, and we had to like we were going to end it on September thirtieth, but we extended it to October third because the money was just was piling in in the last day it was like all right mm. we've got to leave this open a couple of days i think like in the last day or two we raised like an extra hundred and ten thousand dollars or something so <laughs> wow. it was like uh probably should keep this open yeah that's that's worth leaving open an extra yeah. day <laughs> but overall this this year's campaign was fantastic we learned a lot and you know for me it was just so just so incredibly rewarding and fun to be able to be back in memphis for the podcast-a-thon which was a great success the, the whole video is on youtube i'll put a link in the show notes for people if they want to watch it uh, a very kind commenter time stamped the whole thing so if you want to jump around to different segments or whatever you, you that's all in there in one of the comments in the youtube video mm-hmm. um, but yeah it was truly fantastic and we achieved something that i just did not think was going to be possible and uh, once again the relay fm community has gone and surprised us cortexmerch.com this is the second thing final like, thing and, and what's and what's the final piece <laughs> is is subtleties and subtle sweaters we're reminding you maybe you have now finished your commute and you're walking into the office or whatever and right. you didn't do what i asked you to do earlier so now you can get your phone out and you can go to cortexmerch.com and buy yourself a subtlety or subtle sweater or both or all or whatever you want unlike the saint jude fundraiser this will not be extended so yeah for realsies cortexmerch.com